0: Hi, I'm Mike Rees. I've been writing for The Simpsons for 30 years. In my free time, I've visited 130 countries. Not by choice. Find out where I've gone, what I've done, and most of all, what am I doing here? Throughout this podcast, we'll be visiting a lot of weird and wonderful countries. Places you never thought of visiting, but maybe you should. We'll start off this week with two countries that couldn't be more different from each other and more different from normal human behavior. Set sail for the Sudan! But first, Iceland! Iceland. It's one of the few facts we all remember from grade school. Greenland is actually icy and Iceland is really green. And like everything we learned in school, it's completely wrong. Thanks to climate change, Greenland is getting warmer by the day, and Iceland is as cold as crap. It's chilly in the summer, and in the winter, only an idiot would go there. I am that idiot. My wife dragged me to Reykjavik in February to see the Northern Lights. We checked into a hotel that featured prime viewing of the phenomenon. Every 40 minutes from 2 to 8 in the morning, hotel workers would bang on our door shouting, They're happening! They're happening! We'd run out into the polar night still in our pajamas only to hear, You missed it! You missed it! We did catch a couple of good looks at the Aurora Borealis, and let me say something that no one else has the courage to admit. They're a big celestial nothing. To my naked eye, they were wispy clouds of gray-green smoke. They look great in National Geographic because, by some cruel joke of nature, the northern lights photograph beautifully. To repeat, the northern lights are gorgeous on camera, zilch in person. Just like Julianne Moore. I saw her at the supermarket. Still, the natural beauty of Iceland does not disappoint. There are caves of ice, frozen waterfalls, and squat, shaggy horses that resemble comedy writer Bruce Valanche. If it all looks like something out of Lord of the Rings, that's no coincidence. Peter Jackson scouted locations here that he duplicated in his 57-hour film trilogy. Denise and I took a nature hike, and in true Tolkien fashion, it was led by a giant. He stood 7 feet tall, and 90% of his body weight was beard. When we came to an icy river, he picked my wife up in his mighty arms and carried her across. And then, against my will, he did the same to me. Finally, in a truly surreal touch, he pulled out an accordion and played polka tunes atop a glacier. A good question is, why? An even better question is, where? Where the hell was this giant hiding an accordion for the entire four-hour hike? My guess, his butt. Of course, there's so much more to see in Iceland. Actually, there's just three things. There's the Blue Lagoon, a huge spa warmed by geothermal energy and tourist urine. Every year, 700,000 visitors, that's twice the population of Iceland, come to soak in God's Jacuzzi. And since the waters are said to have healing powers, many, many of these tourists suffer from skin diseases like eczema. This is Iceland's number one attraction, a bubbling slow cooker jammed with thousands of people, many of them blistered, flaking, and oozing. I'd sooner share a toothbrush with Willie Nelson. Iceland's most photographed site is Hallgrímskirkja. Church. It's Iceland's tallest and largest church and is said to look like Superman's fortress of solitude. But to me, it was a stylized pair of praying hands soaring hundreds of feet in the air, a tribute to the power of faith and God's love. And it's walking distance to the Penis Museum. Yes, not far from the cathedral is the Icelandic Phallological Museum, a single tiny space crammed with hundreds of penises, again, like Bruce Valange. Twenty whale-peckers cross overhead like rafters, while several more run from floor to ceiling. These are load-bearing wieners. My wife seemed particularly taken with a tanned walrus wang, which jutted out of the wall like an obscene water main. Feeling threatened, I kept trying to steer her towards a display of tiny hamster peonies, but she wasn't budging. We still hadn't given up on the Northern Lights. My wife rented a cabin deep in the heart of Iceland that was said to be ideal for night sky viewing. As we drove out of Reykjavik, we stopped at what should be a tourist spot but isn't, the lone, unremarkable grave of Bobby Fischer. He'd been the greatest chess player who ever lived. Then he went a little nutso. He spent a dozen years as a fugitive, had all his fillings removed, and did some jail time in Japan. This world-famous Jewish kid from Brooklyn wound up in a small suburb of Reykjavik, buried in front of a tiny church. It was a surprising final move in the unorthodox endgame of Bobby Fischer. And now, back to Snark! We arrived at our cabin, which was miles away from anything in Iceland, which in itself is miles from anything on Earth. The owner was Dog, a Kenny Loggins-looking hippie who seemed unaware that being a hippie was no longer a thing. His previous houseguest had been Queen guitarist Brian May, who'd also come to see the Northern Lights. Mr. May, like many rock musicians, has a doctorate in astrophysics. Years later, I met Brian May and told him about our shared experience. Professor May immediately launched into a 40-minute lecture on the Aurora Borealis. That's when I whispered something to my wife I never thought I'd say. I said, get me away from Brian May. Dog served us a hearty stew of his own recipe, then led us outside to see the northern lights. There were none. The sky was as thickly clouded as it's ever been in human history. And that's when Dog went a little nutso. He wandered into an icy lake up to his waist and tried to catch some fish with his bare hands. Illuminated by the headlights of his Jeep, he made that slight shift from resembling Kenny Loggins to looking just like Charles Manson. We returned to Dog's home empty-handed. We were a hundred miles from the nearest living soul, trapped in a cabin with a crazed wet hippie. Our vacation had turned into a horror movie, and not a particularly good one. I was certain we'd wind up ingredients in the hearty stew Dog served his next guests. The following morning rose bright and cloudy. Dog woke up chipper and full of hippie hope, determined to show us a good time. He set each of us on his prize snowmobiles and gave us the 40 seconds training needed to master them. Snowmobiles may look exciting, but they get boring really fast. They're basically golf carts that drive on snow. Only an idiot couldn't handle one. I was that idiot. I immediately got stuck in a patch of wet snow and started gunning the engine to escape. The snowmobile belched black smoke, then burst into flame. What did you? How did you? It's not possible! Dog sputtered. In a country full of surreal sights, this was the most Dali-esque. A mellow hippie completely losing his cool, while a snowmobile blazed like a yule log. Who needs the northern lights? The Sudan! We boarded a bus in southern Egypt. It was filled with people carrying things you would never think to bring on a bus. Dishwashers, refrigerators, a hundred pound bag of onions, a piano. The bus rolled exactly five feet when everyone, people, appliances, onions, was ordered to get off. That was the entire ride. After a quick three hours in customs, we entered the Sudan. By the way, it's the Sudan. The the is part of the name, like the Bronx or... Jersey Shore's The Situation. It sounds classy, but the name just translates to The Black People, to distinguish them from the beige people of Egypt. The title of this podcast could not be more apropos than in the case of The Sudan. About halfway through our visit, I asked my wife, What are we doing here? I don't know, she said. To this day, we can't figure out why we went. It's like we'd been drugged and woken up naked on the main street of Khartoum. In two weeks there, we never saw another tourist. In every hotel we stayed in, we were the only guests. Mind you, their hotels aren't exactly hotels. They're just large, pleasant buildings with dozens of cots scattered around. No lobby, no cafe, no staff. It had the feeling of a large college dormitory just after a bomb scare. Similarly, the Sudan's restaurants aren't restaurants. They're just open kitchens with tables and chairs scattered along the side of the road. You bring your own food, you cook it yourself, you bus your own table, and then you buy a coke from the owner so he can pretend he's running a restaurant. This self-deception is common in the Sudan. Even though no one visits, the locals think it's crawling with tourists. It's never been so busy, said our tour guide, gesturing to an absolutely empty expanse of desert. It's getting too crowded. The Sudan is a nation of Miss Havishams, expecting a wedding to break out at any minute. We stumbled on one honest-to-goodness luxury resort in the country... It was Christmas Day, what would have been the height of the tourist season if they had one, and this resort was completely deserted. I'm sure of this because every door to every room in the place was wide open, proclaiming its existential emptiness. I thought staying here might be a nice Christmas gift to my wife, so I inquired about booking a room. Eight hundred dollars, the manager told me. Perhaps his price point was the reason he had no guests. It was a nice place, but the going rate for a hotel room in the Sudan was 15 bucks a night. Could you go any lower? I asked. We are completely full. No room at the inn, on Christmas, in the desert. (laughs) Jesus. The Sudan's main claim to fame, and an excellent reason to visit, is that they have more pyramids than Egypt. They're not as big as the Great Pyramids, but there are plenty that they're 30, 40, even 50 feet tall. And they are lousy with them. The Sudan has pyramids like Seattle has coffee shops. As a result, the Sudanese are not particularly protective of their cultural heritage. You can climb these pyramids. You can camp in front of them. If you could fit one in your lap, I'm sure they'd let you take it on the bus. They're pretty easygoing people. I learned this when we were trying to drive across the Nile and the ferry broke down. Or to be more specific, the donkey who pulled the rope that towed the ferry had broken down and gone to sleep. We were stuck and so was the truck driver behind us. But instead of cursing and honking his horn, this driver stripped naked, grabbed a bar of soap and jumped in the Nile for a bath. Then so did my tour guide and then so did I. I sank a foot deep into the rich Nile mud. This was the silt that flooded Egypt every year, turning a desert into fertile farmland. This is the mud that made civilization. I like it, I said. The words just came out of me. I like it, repeated the truck driver. I like it. He didn't speak English, but he enjoyed the sound of it. After we crossed the Nile, we ran into the truck driver at a stoplight. He leaned out his window and said, I like it. Then we ran into him in a different city two days later, and he said it again. I like it. For all I know, he's still saying it, nonstop, like a loon. I'd gotten to love crazy Sudan. I found it hard to leave, literally. We were driving through a small village when a farmer waved us into his home. We were the first and quite possibly the last tourists he had ever seen. As our host poured us endless cups of tea and coke, I noticed that this humble farmer had a house that was friggin' huge. Maybe 10,000 square feet of rooms and enclosed courtyards. This was typical of the region. Cinder blocks were cheap and land was even cheaper. So why shouldn't four people live in a 50-room house? When we left this farmer's house, his neighbors invited us into their McMansion. And then their neighbors' neighbors, and his neighbors' neighbors' neighbors. I could have done this forever, endlessly abusing the nation's hospitality. But all the tea and cokes were giving me caffeine psychosis. It was time to leave the Sudan. Sudanese airports are so confusing, so mismanaged, and so corrupt, that our tour guide had to hire a professional to cut through all the red tape. The Enforcer. Enforcer. He was a huge man, six foot six, apparently constructed of cinder blocks himself. With his shaved head, he looked like the convict from the Green Mile, except his magical power was the ability to navigate Khartoum Airport. He got us there six hours early, and then we stood back and watched as this African colossus moved from one line to another, filling out forms, intimidating, wheedling, and possibly bribing officials. By the time the enforcer got back to us with our boarding passes, he appeared to have shrunk noticeably. Khartoum Airport had broken him. There were actually tears in his eyes. <laughs> they just make it so hard, he sobbed. They're there, Gigantor, I said, patting his massive back. They're there. I still have no idea why I went to the Sudan, but I like it. What Am I Doing Here was written and performed by Mike Reese and produced by Josh Perillo, featuring Denise Reese as herself. Additional voices by Trevor Morris, Mike's funny doorman.